we're going to change gears now and look at 1 Corinthians. Um, but I would encourage you after the service, stop at the table out there. You'll see the display and pick up information about how you can pray and care for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in other places in the world and who are suffering persecution. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 12 and on. Uh, when I was growing up, nobody ever talked about sex. And nobody ever talked about sex in my family. I shouldn't say nobody ever talked about it. My dad did, did give the sex talk once when I was a young adolescent. And we're sitting at the kitchen table. It lasted about 12 seconds. It was entirely unintelligible. He might as well have been speaking in a different language. When the 12 seconds were up, he asked me if I had any questions and then breathed an enormous sigh of relief when I said no. (laughs) Questions. I had no idea what he just said. So, you know, I'm like most other people. I'm not comfortable talking about sex, so what do I do? I preach through 1 Corinthians where there's as much sex as there is on primetime TV. In our text today, we have a um, strong argument against unmarried sex. But before we get there, let me, let me set this up for us. Today's passage is about sex, but guess what? It is also one of the most robustly theological passages in 1 Corinthians. Theology and sex? Absolutely. This text deals with the theological implications regarding our right to do what we want with our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6 lies at the intersection between theology and real life. Now, you and I cross that intersection every day, whether we're aware of it or not. And from that intersection, it is entirely possible to take a wrong turn. The Corinthians had taken a wrong turn. Long before our bodies ourselves came out in 1970, the Corinthians could have penned the line, claim your sexuality for your own pleasure. But Paul says, you've arrived at the wrong conclusion because your theology is mixed up. You can't get your life right when your theology is wrong. See, theology is kind of like the hidden files on your computer. You can't normally see those files, but they influence almost everything that happens on your computer. Now, you can go to the Options button on the View tab and select Show Hidden Files, which is kind of what Paul is doing here. He selects the Show Hidden Theology tab because he wants to demonstrate how corrupted theology files were influencing the way the Corinthians were living. If those theology files to which he pointed were in folders, like on our computers, they would be titled, in the old way of talking about it, anthropology, ecclesiology, eschatology, pneumatology, and soteriology. Now that's going to be on the test as soon as we're done. And by the way, this is the first of a number of computer analogies. We're going to geek it until it megahertz today. <laughs> Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll read verses 12 through 20. And as I read it, it's going to be obvious to you that this text is about sex. But see if you can identify the corrupted theological files that were driving the Corinthians' behavior, as well as the Apostle Paul's Uh, theological updates and fixes. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. 
Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know... One of the ten times he asked that question. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. People in first century Corinth and and all around the Greco-Roman world thought and taught that sex was a natural act and was therefore a good thing. Your body was equipped by the manufacturer for sex. So as long as you enjoy sex and you don't use it to defraud or deceive, it's just fine. It's appropriate. Now, if that sounds really contemporary, it is. That's exactly what people are saying today. Since it's natural, it must be good. But Paul would answer, nature is not natural since the fall. Just because something happens in a recurring fashion in this fallen world doesn't mean that that's how God intended it. And that, by the way, is theology. That's theology intersecting with real life. In verses 12 and 13, if you don't understand this, you're going to miss what's going on here. In verses 12 and 13, Paul parrots back some of the sayings that were popular in Corinth at the time. The first line of verse 12 is almost certainly a maxim the Corinthian Christians were using to support their lifestyle choices. Everything's permissible for me. The idea is, I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I have authority in Christ. I'm free to do what I want. That idea represents one of those hidden theology files that ran the Corinthians' lives, but had been corrupted. It's not that there was no truth in it. There was. In fact, the original saying might well have come from Paul himself, and notice that he doesn't contradict it, but he does correct it. He offers in computer parlance a patch because the theology was not interfacing with real life. He takes their saying, everything's permissible for me, and he adds this patch, but not everything is beneficial. The man or woman in Christ doesn't stop at what's permissible, but goes on to what is beneficial, what's pleasing to God and beneficial to others. The person who's out to please himself is going to focus on what he can get away with. The person who's out to please God is going to focus on what he can give away with God's help. When a Christian is thinking, what can I get away with here? He's already defeated and of very little use to God. Once you start thinking, can I do this and still be all right? You're already in big trouble. 
Paul repeats that same maxim a second time in verse 12. This time he applies a different patch. Everything's permissible for me. Okay, but I will not be mastered by anything. In Greek, the sentence is almost musical, and there's a play on words in it that we can't hear in English. The words that are translated permissible and mastered, they come from the same root. So they sound alike when they're spoken. Paul uses that same root three times in this one sentence. One way of trying to communicate that, uh, uh, Anthony Fisselton, a scholar, tried to get it this way. I'm at liberty to do everything, but I'll not let anything take liberties with me. Another way of putting it might be, I have the right to do what I want, but nothing has the right to make me do what it wants. When liberty brings us into captivity, when demanding our rights leads us to do wrong, when personal freedoms reduce us to slaves of physical desires, you can be sure that our hidden theology files have been corrupted. Verse 13, Paul pulls out another maxim from the Corinthians collection. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The NIV 84 ends the quote after the word food. But both the sentence structure and Paul's argument suggest that the original maxim didn't end there. It didn't end with the word both. The line should be food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. That's what the Corinthians were saying. And this is what they meant. In the same way food exists for the stomach and a person's stomach exists for food, so sex exists for the body and the body exists for sex. So it's totally natural. And, and, and it really doesn't matter anyway because someday God's going to do away with our bodies and with sex when we're in heaven. Only the soul matters because only the soul lasts. Do you see what's going on here? That's theology. We can't help ourselves. We're incorrigible. We are theological right down to the bone. Even though the application here is about sex, the principle is theological. It's all about God's creation of embodied people rather than bodiless souls. The Corinthians were saying, look, obviously God equipped the human body for sex and made sex pleasurable. Therefore, sex is a good thing as long as it doesn't otherwise violate one's moral code. And besides that, your body's going to die and be destroyed. So what difference does it make? Now, that sounds logical, doesn't it? Error often does. There are two main points here from the Corinthians' perspective. The first one is this. Sex is natural, and therefore sex is good. And the second one is the body, unlike the soul, is temporal, and therefore what you do with it doesn't really matter. So let's take Paul's responses one at a time, and, and I just want to note that the answers that he gives come from the theological files marked anthropology. In theology, that's the study of man. And from the folder marked eschatology, the study of last things. With the Corinthians' first point, Paul has no quarrel. It's really important to understand. He agrees. Sex is good. And he's going to go on in the next chapter to make that even plainer. But his argument is this. In principle, sex is good. But that's not the only principle in play. Nor is it the most important one. 
So he tells the Corinthians, you say sex for the body, the body for sex. Okay, I'll grant you that. I'm not going to argue with you. But there's a hierarchy here that must be observed. The body is for sex, but more importantly, the body is for the Lord. Any use of sex that keeps you from serving the Lord with your body is going to hurt you and it's going to dishonor God. God gave us a body. Instead of making us bodiless souls, he gave us a body so that we could know him and serve him and so that he could live in and through us by his spirit. When sex or anything else conflicts with that, it will cause us to malfunction as followers of Christ. It's those hidden files that cause our lives to run poorly and sometimes to crash. So that's the first answer. Yeah, I agree with you, but there's a hierarchy of principles here. Don't violate the fundamental ones. And next, Paul's answer is to that second point, that the body's going to be destroyed anyway, so what does it matter? With this point, he does have a quarrel. And his answer is rooted in one of the most theologically important concepts in the Bible, resurrection. Paul argues, you say what you do with your body doesn't matter because the soul is all that matters. Don't you know, this is verse 14, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also? Your body does matter. The Corinthians, and again, this is theology. The Corinthians had erected a barrier between body and spirit. The body's nothing more than the broken down old house in which the soul lives. When the soul abandons it for something better for heaven, the body will fall to the ground, useless and forgotten, and good riddance to it. They believe that the soul can be saved, but the body is doomed to destruction. But they were mistaken, which is why Paul will later ask in chapter 15, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? See, that's what they were saying, and that theology was behind their practice. Their hidden theology files were corrupted, and their lives weren't working right. And so there are all kinds of conflicts going on. In verse 15 and 16, Paul gives a practical illustration. Okay. A guy pays for sex, and, and he takes, the Greek means literally takes away or takes from. When a guy pays for, for sex, he takes away the body he dedicated to the Lord, and he gives it to a prostitute. That's not a trivial matter. It violates the way we're made. It conflicts with our original programming. In God's brilliant design, sex unites people in a way that nothing else does. Sex triggers, more recently scientists have discovered, that sex triggers the release of hormones like vasopressin and oxytocin, which create feelings of affection in both men and women. But the woman's response is stronger to those hormones. God designed sex to be a kind of glue that holds people together or helps hold them together throughout married life. Sex creates a bond, and it does so whether we want to be bound or not. It totally doesn't matter whether you want to be bound. Sex is still a glue. See, people were never designed for casual sex. If sex becomes casual, it's because we have become something God didn't intend. The Corinthians were engaging in casual sex, and when challenged about it, they were arguing that they were forgiven, 
They're going to heaven. They're free to do what they want. Let me go back to computing for an analogy. Say you work in a highly secure government building on a computer that's part of a dedicated network. Since your work serves some critical purpose, nothing from outside that network can be uploaded onto your computer. But you secretly create a wireless hotspot in your little cubicle in order to get your computer online and explore the internet. Now you're linked to the server and to all those other computers on your network, and it's all too likely that you'll introduce a virus into that network that's gonna cause all kinds of trouble. And that's when the administrator of the system says to you, right before he fires you, this is verse 14, paraphrased, shall I take the computer on your network and unite it to an infected site? Never. See, if we're Christians, we are members of Christ, that's verse 15, and elsewhere, and we are members of one another. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 5, Ephesians 4, 25. We're networked. What you do has consequences that extend far beyond your own body. Your body yourself, don't you believe it? Not if you're a Christ follower. That's not the way it works. So Paul says, this is verse 18 now, Flee from sexual immorality. Free from porneia in Greek, sex outside marriage. You're arguing that it's okay for you to have sex with someone to whom you're not married. You can do what you want. You have that right. Well, maybe you do. I suppose you have the right to jump off a cliff too, but a sane person won't exercise that right. Just don't do it, Paul says. This is hortatory in Greek. It's a command. Just don't do it. Put as much distance as you can between you and casual sex. Now, if you've read Paul very much, you probably know that he's not afraid to issue some straightforward, no-nonsense commands like this one. He does it quite often, actually. But did you know that he almost never ends on a command like that? He never ends a section that way. He would much rather convince than command. And so he gives two final, deeply theological reasons for avoiding sexual immorality. The first is from the folder marked pneumatology, the theology of the spirit. Paul's already told the Corinthians that their church, their whole church, is a temple, and God's spirit lives in them corporately. But in verse 19, he adds something he hasn't said before, that God's spirit lives within the bodies of individual believers. Every believer, every believer's body is a temple, a place where God dwells, designed by God so that others can come into contact with him. That means we better be careful not to pollute the temple. The second reason to avoid immorality comes from the folder marked soteriology, which is the theology of salvation. The Christian is free but that freedom exists in the context of his relationship to Christ. Now, it's a paradox. The Christian is free, but only because he's bound to Christ. The Christian is her own unique person, but only because she's someone else's person. You, Paul says, are not your own. You don't belong to you. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God, not yourself, with your body. God bought you out of this dead-end life of sin. He bought you out of slavery to your own passions. He paid a high price to free you from slavery to sin and bring you into his own family. 
And that price was nothing less than the death of his son. That's theology. And after all this theology, Saxon theology, Paul, as is his want, gives us application. Glorify, that's literal, the NIV says dishonor, but glorify God with your body. Now let me make a couple of brief comments. First, to glorify God is to make him shine. It's to make him well-known. It's to wow people about God. Followers of Jesus love to glorify God and are uniquely placed to do that. But the Corinthians were busy glorifying themselves instead of God. And it's impossible to do both at the same time. And, and that brings me to that other comment. It is with our bodies that we glorify God. Okay? Just try to glorify God without your body. See if you can do it. Without your tongue, without your hands, without your mouth, without your eyes, without your brain, you're going to find it hard to do. If you're going to glorify God, it will be with your body, the body that you have right now. And likewise, if you're going to dishonor God, it will be with your body. Your body counts. It matters. Now, you don't need a strong body to glorify God. You don't need a beautiful body. You don't even need a healthy body. The body you have, whether it's roll around the middle and it's bald spot on top and it's arthritis and it's wrinkles and it's illness and it's disease and it's embarrassing acne and it's ridiculous comb over, the body that you have will work just fine as long as you have the intention. That's a matter of the heart, not the body. Now, if you don't believe it, if you don't think that you can bring glory to God with your body, your old or young, fat, skinny, wrinkled, goofy, broken body, just watch this video. I was born in Melbourne, Australia, 1982, and my parents had no idea that I was going to be born without arms or legs. I was the only one that I ever saw without limbs. My faith in Jesus Christ was sealed after seven years of wondering why, God, I was born this way. Uh, he answered me very clearly through John chapter 9. And I gave my life to Jesus at 15 after reading about how he came across a man who was born blind. And I'm like, hey, hold on a second. This looks interesting. <laughs> and no one knew why he was born that way. I'm like, perfect. So I read on, and in verse 3 of the ninth chapter, Jesus said, it was done so that the works of God would be revealed through him. And I'm like, wow, God, if you had a plan for the blind man, you do have a plan for me. And that was the beginning of my personal relationship with Jesus. Youth groups were starting to call me. Churches were starting to call me. Opportunities were opening up everywhere for me to share my testimony. I was speaking in front of 300 sophomore public high school students. Three minutes into it, half the girls were crying. One girl in the middle of the room started weeping. She put up her hand and she said, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but can I come up there and give you a hug? In front of everyone. She came and she hugged me. She cried on my shoulder and whispered in my ear, no one's ever told me that they love me. 
No one's ever told me that I'm beautiful the way that I am. I couldn't believe it. It changed my life. That was when I knew I was called to be a worldwide evangelist. until you give God your broken pieces. And I want you to know when you fall down, God's grace is sufficient. God's hand will come down and pick you up. Give you the strength to get back up. By the grace of God, we have seen face-to-face a half a million souls say yes to Jesus and be plugged into a local church. As crazy as it sounds, our goal at Life Without Limbs Ministry is to preach to every single soul on the planet. Seven billion people. We believe that this goal is possible as the Holy Spirit is gathering an army and building up supporters to send us and accomplish this mission. You think you have obstacles to glorifying God with your body? My body's too old. I can't do it. My body hurts too much. I can't do it. My body's too funny looking. Nobody wants to listen to me. I can't do it. Well, stop saying that. When your heart intention is right, God will use your body to glorify him. Go and use your body to glorify him. Now let's pray. God, keep us from the things that dishonor you with our bodies. The words that our tongues form. The looks in our eyes that people can see that show contempt. The distance that we make between ourselves and those who aren't like us. Lord, the, the sex that doesn't belong in your people. Keep us from the things that bring you dishonor and use our bodies to bring you glory until the day you resurrect us in glory to serve you in the presence of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.